This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 130. My guest is Neometals CEO, Chris Reed. We cover a lot of ground from Neometals projects in recycling and electrolytic lithium to Chris's thoughts on peak spodumene and a whole lot more. I have no financial relationship with Neometals other than being a very happy investor. Without further ado, Chris Reed. Chris Reed, welcome back to the podcast. It is indeed my pleasure, Mr. Lowry. A closed WA does not seem to have slowed Neometals down. Let's talk about some of the many things you've been doing, maybe focusing on the recycling, the electrolytic lithium or ELI. We may be getting into some other subjects like peak spodumene, but uh, I am looking forward to, to spending some time here. Before we do all that, a lot of new listeners may not know your origin story of being the guy who brought Mount Marion into production. Let's talk about your first lithium life and then move from there to what you're doing today. Sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, my journey in lithium started on my birthday, 17th of November, 2008 in Germany, where I was bumped into uh, a German and an American guy coming out of a meeting as I was going into. And, and they said, look, you're the young kid that's uh, got this vanadium project. Go and find me some lithium. And I went into the meeting and I, I said to uh, my German host, you know, like, who, who are those cats and, and why are they talking about lithium? He said, did they talk to you? And I said, yep. And he said, whatever they said, you need to listen to them. One was the head of R&D for Daimler and the other one was Johnson Controls. And I thought, well, I don't know what they need lithium for. And he said, mate, the future's electric. And so on my way back home, I started researching, you know, lithium, brines, hard rock, and then checked the minerals. And, and, and one came up. And, and as a 19-year-old, I used to have to drive over what is now the Mount Marion lithium mine or the outcropping pegmatites to get to the Mount Marion gold mine. So I knew where it was. So... I did a deal with the prospector and um, then bought in the guys from Minres. So we originally wanted to do some contract crushing and they had a look at the project and said, look, we'd love to partner with you. So we partnered with Mr. Ellison in, in 2009. We caught the tail end of the, the last cycle. We went then through the Brian Wars, a few years in the wilderness, developed the Eli technology, and then the market came better in 14, 15. Um, we brought Ganfeng into the equation for, for offtake and equity. And then we did a, a staged 
sellout, we, you know, when we started building Mount Marion, we started looking at the other end of the supply chain, which was the battery recycling. So, yeah, I think we're, look, we're, we're very fortunate and uh, I'm very grateful that um, someone upstairs probably gave me a slap in the face and told me to look at lithium rather than gold. Well, you certainly made a profitable exit or actually a couple of profitable exits from Mount Marion in various ways. So then the next step was going into urban mining. We talked about that when you were on towards the end of 2020. Let's get an update on where your various tentacles are moving Europe, Great Lakes area in the US and potentially even Japan. How do you see your role in this recycling and urban mining playing out? Yeah, thanks. A good question. So look, I think what we've what we've designed is first of all we had to design uh, a process to be able to handle different flavors inside a, an NMC battery. You know, I mean LCO we were sort of familiar with, but it was really developing uh, a a solution not only from the metallurgy but to deliver from a sort of ESG perspective, so you know, low carbon footprint trying not to emit anything into the air or in the water and, and being conscious of our tailings. So that was the process. Then we had to try to work out how we were going to commercialize it. So we took what the market was going to look like. So relatively flat for the production scrap until mid this decade, when the um, batteries, the EV batteries that were sold at the back end of last decade reached their end of life. And we get onto that big tsunami of supply. So the two plants, and so look, you know, in terms of sizing the plants that we looked at, we thought, well, Tesla, the Gigafactory, 35 gigawatt hours, revolutionized battery costs. More with their model of doing everything under the one shed. So we designed a a 50 ton a day plant or sort of 18 to 18 plus thousand tons a year to handle the steady state production scrap out of a gigafactory. Now, we do know that all factories have higher scrap rates in the early years. And then we were going to scale up from 50 tonnes a day to 500 tonnes a day. So they're the sort of two plants that we're looking at. We realised that we would have to demonstrate to the market that our technologies are sort of best of breed. So, you know, we piloted up at SGS in Canada for a year and we then did the deal with a plant builder because it's a market growth, you know, or a, a, um, we've got an aggressive strategy to, to get into the market and secure as much feed as we can with our eyes on the end of life. Production scrap, great. Big prize end of life at the back end of the decade and certainly the decades to come. So partnering with a, with a plant builder was an important part, someone who's incentivized to build more plants and bigger plants. So that's where SMS come in. We've got a We've been running a one ton a day demonstration plan at Hilkenbuck. So the front end's shredding and beneficiation, making the black mass for the Hydromet refinery. That's going along really well. We've scaled up the front end and we had a permit for one ton a day. Our new permit that we're expecting next month is 10 tons a day, although the plant can go much higher. The German permits sort of limit us at 10 tons a day and We'll have our engineering studies sort of mid-year on a 50-tonne-a-day plant, spoke and hub. That's, you know, our deal in with Stelco is to give them a license in the interim to go and secure feedstocks. And then we have the option once we give them the studies and the plant supply contract to buy in, which, you know, we're pretty keen to do. So outside of China, uh, Europe and uh, North America are the next fastest growing markets. If you can succeed with all the regulations in Europe, I would think if your model works in Europe, it's going to work anywhere. 
just based on the fact that they seem to uh, have, at least at this point, more rules than maybe some other jurisdictions have. But talked last time about your partners don't like to build 20,000 ton plants. They'd rather build 200,000 ton plants, I think was the way you put it back then. And at that kind of scale, you become like a regular lithium project. And of course, lithium being the freebie when you're talking about high nickel batteries between extracting nickel and cobalt, it does seem like a a rather profitable world, especially with where lithium prices may hang around uh, for the foreseeable future, which is a lot different than when we talked in 2020. Yeah, it is, Joe. Uh, Absolutely. And we we are cognizant of that. And the the lithium is the only non-substitutable element that's in that lithium ion battery. You know, it's it's in the cathode, it's in the electrolyte, uh, whether that be sort of aqueous or solid. And um, they've got to impregnate the, the anode with it too. How will your deals be structured? What are the rules in terms of if you have a, a, a cradle-to-grave environment, do you make the deal with the battery producer, with the auto OEM, a combination of both? What's a deal structure look like to get you the, the feedstock you need for your plants? Yeah, look, I mean, we've got we've got three business models, Joe. So that that 10 ton a day plan in Hilkenbach is really to dispose of the plant. So the, the, the car makers and the cell makers have got an obligation to obviously safely handle their waste at the moment. So we're looking to do that as principal and charging a fee. The second business model is is partnering and hence you know we partnered with Stelco where we're looking to do it in a joint venture because they have ambitions to recycle large volumes of end of life arisings in terms of cars because they need the steel scrap for their transition to more greener electric arc furnaces um, but we could equally do that with a with a car maker or a cell maker and I think you know we have prepared our business like all businesses should for lower margins we can see increased volume we're going to have to make less you know you've been in the lithium industry um the car makers are not the same as doing business with the with the um contributor electronics guys right the the car makers like to beat up their suppliers annually they accept that we might need to make a reasonable amount of money and and we think that in time they will want to do that themselves because that will mean that their cost of recycling is the lowest and, and in-house they'll have the most secure supply chain. So if you were looking at who would be a natural owner for, for battery recycling technology, it would be the car makers. Um, my bet is that Redwood will end up inside the Tesla tent at some stage. Not, like that Solar wouldn't be City. a surprise, yeah. Yeah, a bit like Solar City, right? I think um, we'll move to a licensing model. We'll still be building in plants, but licensing them the technology over time. Because you have a look at these car makers and, and they're going to be getting millions of tons of battery packs back. Volkswagen at 10 million um, cars around the globe and, you know, Mercedes and BMW at a couple of million cars. There's everyone's going to have volume. The North American car makers, right? The Asian car makers. So I think certainly with respect to your comment and Europe and the regulations, Yes, it's a very, very high bench. And so when we looked, you know, recycling efficiency rates, we're above the recycling efficiency rates in the new battery regs that are supposed to be effective from 25. But what we've done is, um, you know, no airborne emission of anything, any waters, RO uh, quality, and 
rather than using conventional sodium as a pH adjuster, we're using more expensive ammonia, but we're getting ammonium sulfate and very high purity ammonium sulfate as our tailings product. So the largest product by volume out of the battery recycling pants fertilizer, but don't <laughs> tell anyone. Okay. We'll keep it our secret. Sure. You've uh, got a slide in your, one of your latest uh, presentation packs that talks about position an EV is at the beginning of life. And that's at a five-year deficit to an ICE from a carbon footprint. I guess I never thought about it that way. I've had a, been in a lot of conversations about if you have a Tesla, but it's charged from a coal fire plant, it takes so long to uh, be at carbon parity. But you make the statement that an EV at the beginning has got a five-year deficit to, assuming I'm phrasing this properly, to an ICE that ha- that has to be made up in the the improvements that you can make by recycling, by some of the things you're doing, you can minimize that. Walk me through that. Do I have that right? Is yeah, look, you do, Joe. So the cars, for all intents, are uh, identical. Let's swap out the internal combustion engine for the electric motors and say, you know, different metals, but like for like, similar weight. What is the difference? You've got a four, you know, three, four, five hundred kilogram battery pack bolted onto that bad boy that for all intents and purposes that is the difference and you don't have a little 20 gallon tank or you know whatever for fuel so you you start off with twice the co2 footprint so when it rolls off the production line there'll be a little sticker that says this baby's got x tons of carbon to produce this car right that's that's where we're getting to i mean now your cell phone plans you can buy a carbon neutral cell phone plan now i don't know how that works but they sell them so the and 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 so where does it come from um well it it it, uh, you know the electricity in the battery making process the labor in the battery making process it's not it's it's a carbon footprint of the battery materials Right, so you've got lithium that was mined in Australia, converted in China. No disrespect to the Brian guys, but you know, where the bloody hell are you? I mean, we're the ones in Australia that are digging the holes. You know, Wajener and a Green Bushes expansion, and you know, Mount Holland. I mean, we've bought. I mean, where would the world be if you never had? You know, if we hadn't done Mount Marion and followed by Pilbara and you know, Altura and I mean. Crikey's, the price would be a hundred thousand ton. Might still get that, you don't know. It might. You, it might. <laughs> if you were waiting for the Brian guys to contribute anything meaningful, it bloody would be. No disrespect. No disrespect. Um it's just a fact. You can have a look. You could map it out over time. So yeah, it's so you've got lithium from Australia, you've got cobalt that was mined in the DRC, you know, nickel that could have come from Indonesia or Russia or anywhere. They've just got long carbon rich supply chains. We've got to appreciate that. And then I get these guys, these sort of traditional miners, and I tell them, oh yeah, I, I see you're going to make your stuff and it's in the batteries and but you got you know what your carbon footprint is? No, I said well you can't sell to the car makers. What are you talking about? And I said, well, mate, they can't, they can't buy the product unless they know how about CO2. They've got to audit and tell everyone. And the other thing they have to do, rather than just the EU battery regulations, is this whole ESG and sustainability. You know, you're in the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, you've got to recycle 85% of your product. 
That's bloody hard to do. It's all right to do if you're an internal combustion engine. It's all metal. Um, a bit difficult if it's got a battery wedge to it. Well, if I read your one of your other slides correctly, of the battery metals, lithium is the biggest offender from a carbon. Yeah, that was in one of the Tesla Prezos too. Uh, my number is probably not as high as theirs, but it's bloody high. It's certainly the biggest. Well, that um, leads us into the whole concept of how urban mining actually solves this problem. It doesn't solve it. It minimizes it, I guess, is a better yeah. way to put it. Take me through how, if, it, if you've got a five-year decrement and you were doing your batteries all from urban mining, what would that, yeah. what would that comparison be relative to, I think, China hard rock conversion is, is the highest CO2 contributor on, on the graph you have in one of your slides. And, and, and I've seen that in a yeah, lot of I people. Think, have been... Yeah, I, I, that's one of the few things I borrow <laughs> off SQM. Um, <laughs> I, I borrowed that off one of their investor days. So you, you, I, would, I would take some of that with a grain of salt. But in terms of the relative, Brian, I, I think, you know, the, if you factor in that you got to take the brine down from the Atacama in little 10-ton trucks down to the side and bring soda ash from Wyoming down yeah. for your reactions and leave mountains of dirty soldiers tailing and blah, blah, blah. Let's just – I don't think the differential is that much, but you are correct. You know, you, you do have to calcine spodumene in a kiln yeah. to make it acid digestible. So I think you can't – and then – you would typically use that that sulfation route in China, and then they would causticize it to to make uh, hydroxide, right? So yeah, exactly, I I think we just take the fact that you've got the the calcination, the carbonation, and the causticizing, right? So you've got there your one, two, three sources of CO two for the for the uh, hard rocks, for the brines. I think if you factor in the the reagents and the transportation probably not as big a delta as uh, that graph might imply. This slide you filched from SQM isn't as bad as some of the life cycle assessment slides I've seen. So yeah. uh, we'll just agree that hard rock with the current processing is the biggest number, depending on how. Without a doubt. That no one's going to ever question that, Joe. Uh, and Brian's are, are a fair way behind, but not as far as I think. And and look, if, if I just take the average CO2 footprint of a ton of cells from mined sources, you know, wherever they've come from. Um, we're at about eight tons of CO2 per ton of batteries. The incumbent recyclers who, who, who burn it, you know, melt it or smelt it, Umicore, Glencore and the like, obviously you incinerate the, the graphite anode, the electrolyte and the plastic. So you lose probably half your mass and hence you reduce your CO2 footprint by about half. The hydromet recyclers were we are not combusting the black mass or the, the batteries. So we're taking time to disassemble, shred and separate physically what we can out of the batteries. So we get copper foils, aluminium foils, plastics, steel casings, whatever. Um, we're careful to remove that and reuse it. And then two, we're using the solvent extract. You know, we're using a, a, an acid to digest it, solvent extraction to pull the materials into the various solutions iron exchange to purify them up to battery quality levels. And then we've got to evaporate and crystallize carefully so that we dry, drop them out in their right hydration forms. You can strip 90 to 95% of the carbon out. Let's just take 811. Yep. If you take 811 made from virgin sources versus 811 made 
from all urban mind, how much can you lower the Cabinet cost? Sorry. Well, the, the cost, the cost too. I mean, oh, the I cost. Just, yeah. So we could recover probably in the in our hydromet recycling eighty five percent of the materials, right? To recycle a ton of that that those batteries, it costs us about. 1600 US dollars per tonne. If I take the total site operating costs and I take off the cobalt credit only and then put that over my recovered nickel, I'm the new lowest cost producer in the world by a fair way. And, and the lithium and manganese and ammonium sulfate fertilizer plus the copper and aluminium scrap would be free. So, um, Massive. It'll be the lowest cost by a long way, Joe. So with all due respect to Minrez and Gangfen, leaving Mount Marion to head for urban mining in the long run is, is actually, uh, you're, you're, you become the low, the low cost guy in that. Although it's, uh, you have to, you have to continue to mine virgin sources or do oh. virgin brine because recycling they're, is. They're not a substitute. It's just a compliment. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. If we if we recycled every battery in the world in 2030 that was available, end of life production scrap, whatever, warranty returns. If we recycled every battery in 2030, it would make enough feedstock for 10% of 2030's primary production of cells. It's not a panacea for this decade. At the end of the next decade, it'll probably be half a supply. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. But when you're only when you're recovering eighty, we're talking about twenty forty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, fair point. Well, let's get into one of the other things you like to talk about, and that is on the road. It'll have been seven decades before we get to a million tons of lithium production. Seven decades of a commercial lithium industry. It'll be four and a half years until we get to two, and probably three before we get to three. <laughs> Assuming that uh, current projections are plus or minus, I guess, 20, 20% probably. But you talked about in a couple of presentations I listened to about peak spodumene. And when you talk peak spodumene, in your mind, the, the truly economic resources out there that can get expanded or newly developed what level of LCE production can that take us to? Oh, you know, I think if you have a look at, at green bushes, um, you know, say, say they get green bushes to 2 million tonnes, um, Mount Marion at a half, Pilbara at 700, um, you know, half from Kathleen Valley, half from Mount Holland, you know, I think probably... Mount Catlin's probably, you know, on the wind down yeah. by 2025. But, you know, case in point, if you have a look at 2025 and then, you know, you've got Monono and you've got Mali. Uh, Golamina. You have Golamina. And, um, you know, I think you've got a couple. I mean, we're going to need some of those Canadian boys to step up. You know, I can see us getting to... You know, it's going to be hard work, but you can probably get the 6 million tonnes of spot. That's flat out, Joe. That, that's a million tonnes of LCE. So that leaves, where, do, where does the next million tonnes from? It can only practically come from 
alternates, i.e. brine's having 70-odd percent of the uh, world's resources in ground. But, you know, if we have a look at um, how long it takes to get them up and we, we look at, um, you know, Oricobra, we look at Negra 2, we look at um, your old bosses out there in Argentina, we have a look at the Atacama experience. It would, it would generally, from the day you start construction to the day that you are making steady positive cash flow, would be definitely after five years. And my sense is I might be out to seven years. So where are the next ones in construction? And, and I see the guys at um, LAC and, um, you know, I, I guess we can go back and, and drop a, a marker in the, in, not from when they started doing it with Jay, but say perhaps when, when, when Zhao Shen, you know, really injected and Mr. Lee injected some real life into it and some real horsepower. Five years. Steady. We did that. We did that deal in January of 2017. And okay. how far and how far do you guess it is from steady state production? Maybe another two positive yeah. cash flow. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's it's good. They're not they're not starting up until the, the the second half of this year. And everybody knows, even if they do great, it takes a long time. Yeah, it could be eight eight months. Yeah. So charge your ponds, then you go to pilot and commission. Yeah, I mean, look, seven years. Okay, so where's and we're talking about twenty twenty five you know, 26 or whatever, peak spot, Jermaine. Yep. Right. So we need the brine guys. You, you need big licks and you need it quick. Now, let's just look at history. It's the sun does the work. And I, I'm not, look, the DLEs, Christ, I hope we get there, right? Because it'd be better for the environment, better maintain the hydric balance and just the whole concept of just taking what you need and putting the rest back. So I hope they all succeed. It'd be great. Um, but what does what we, what do we know works really well, and that's using the sun to evaporate, and all of these guys can make a five percent li salar concentrate. The difficult part, and what is taking time, is is turning that into battery grade hydroxide without having to go through battery grade and or technical grade carbonate to start off with. Absolutely. So you're, you're giving me the perfect feedstock for my segue to your next project. If we look at SQM and Albemarle have talked a big game about going to 400,000 tons in the Atacama after the new deals were signed and we're, we're barely maybe halfway there this year. Argentina has been stuck on less than 40,000 tons since Oracobre started because Livent hasn't moved the needle. I have optimism about LAC will get that going. They'll expand it. There'll be a couple other projects. But when you say that, the, the brine guys have 70% of the versus, that's a uh, kind of a chilling thought as to how we extract that. So tell me about your ELI process. It's, as I understand it, a variation on the chloralkali theme, which is why you picked the partner you picked, Bondalti. Yeah, so that's Portugal's largest yeah. uh, chemical company. Where are we going there? Yeah, so look, the, I mean, the genesis was, you know, we started developing Mount Marion in, in 2010. Um, the uh, our friendly South Americans and the Chinese entered into a price war. Uh, the Spodumane price tanked. So we had to look 
you know, at worst case scenario, we might have to develop Mount Marion as an integrated operation. And, and, but if we do that, we need to have a sustainable competitive advantage, right? And, and so we, we looked um, at alternative flow sheets. We couldn't get away from the need to calcine. Um, so that was, that was a given, but we moved away from sulfation into hydrochloric so to make a lithium chloride because we could see that where the brine producers had an advantage was that they could make the intermediate i.e lithium sulfate from rock or lithium chloride because they they generally have a an lce but you know equivalent h um their their source of lithium chloride production was cheaper right because it's already a lithium chloride in the ground um where you have to you know, take lithium oxide or spodumene through to a lithium sulfate. So we thought, well, what we can do is, okay, so we go to lithium chloride, we copy them, but how do we, if we make carbonate, we're still going to, we're still going to have the same cost base um, in the processing. And then we thought, well, what is the best way to make a hydroxide? And it's to electrolyze a chloride and sodium chloralkali, so sodium chloride electrolysis to make caustic soda and chlorine is a hundred year old technology lithium's an alkali metal we rang up one of the world's leading guys dr talak bomaraji up in grand island and said mate we're going to send you a flow sheet you reckon this might work and looked back and he said well it won't be as efficient from a current perspective and electrical consumption perspective but it should work so we did it sodium hydroxide or um, caustic soda is nowhere near the value of lithium hydroxide so i can wear some more electricity and so the more we got into it we could see that there was a massive reduction in the operating costs for converting lithium chloride um, but we still faced with the fact that you know you had to you had to turn seven tons of spodumene into one ton of lithium chloride so yes, it leveled the playing field for us to compete against brine producers with hydroxide. And that's why Mr. Ellison funded it with us. So they're a 30% shareholder in the technology. That was the original shareholdings in Mount Marion. And, but we did, what we did find out is, Jesus, this, this will upset the cost curve if the brine producers get hold of it. And so, yeah, we've tested the technology on um, Atacama lithium chloride. You know, we, we, we started it on the old Rockwood uh, stuff. You know, we rang up the guys at, at Chemital in Germany and got some and uh, had a crack. You know, we've done different Argentine deposits, synthetics, actuals. We've done hard rock uh, from Mount Marion and, and, and green bushes. And once they're in a lithium chloride solution, they don't know where they came from. And it, and it works wonderfully. So you take out all those reagents. You use electricity as your biggest reagent. It can now be green recycled. Uh, renewable electricity. You can do it up at the Salar. You don't have to move stuff all around the world. You don't have to tank it concentrates down that, down the hill to the coast. It's perfect. Yeah. I mean, we've got a pipeline of, you can see that we've partnered with uh, Bondelti to, uh, to build a, a, a lithium hydroxide facility into, into Portugal. And that will be capable of handling either spodumene or a sailor concentrated brine, just like SQM used to sell to Ganfeng. So, you know, from 2010 to 2015, sending tankers of um, sailor concentrated brine up to, uh, up to Ganfeng. Rockwood did so, it for a little while too. Yeah. So. And look, getting back to what I said previously, you know, just think of 
me creating a new market, right? I.e. liquid spodumene. So all of these new developers, whilst they're, you, you build your ponds while you're building your uh, plant, do it in two stages. So you can sell a sailor concentrated brine to me and you can pick up good money. Let me ask you then the question about where you ultimately put the plant. You've made the point and I've made the point before that hydroxide doesn't travel well. It's Correct. better. It's better to be as close to where it's going to be used. On the other hand, shipping brine is shipping brine. Yes, Lee Lang Bin did it for a number of years very successfully. It can be done. But in your mind, from an ESG standpoint, is there going to be more support around having the production for Europe in Europe and moving the brine into Europe or to build the plants closer to the resource? Yeah. I would say to you, and the beauty about our process is, is when you electrolyze it, it's obviously a lithium hydroxide solution, uh, the analyte. And what you can do is you could bleed CO2 captured from emissions or from the sky to carbonate it. Sure. If you were worried about the hydroxide aging. So I would say to you, let's look at the contained lithium in a ton of spodumene or a ton of salar concentrated brine. So 6% LI would need about 12% spodumene. That can't handle. So one ton of brine, shipping one ton of brine in a tanker, you'd have to ship two tons of brine in a bulk carrier, two tons of spodumene, right? So that's the equivalent. So if you had to look at the transportation in a boat, you would have half the, half the carbon footprint of spodumene. Then you have to have a look at the fact that you're not having to calcine the spodumene. That's your biggest CO2 footprint. So, and, you, and you're displacing the CO2 footprint of the soda ash and your sodium hydroxide, Joe. So I think on a net-net basis, I think I could make a significant reduction in the carbon footprint of traditional brine production, not only OPEX saving, but a massive CO2 saving. So I think... On a net benefit, and you can do your electrolysis with renewable power. Um, you can, you can, the hydrogen that you produce off the electrolyzer, you can capture and sell. You do have to have a source for the chlorine, and that's what being with Bondelti helps because the chlorine just goes over the fence to Dow Chemical. So, all we're looking to do, they've got a big chloralkali facility, is that we would take lithium chloride and we would batch it through. Um, and you're right, you should produce it nice and fresh and close to the cell makers and car makers. So that's why Europe, it makes, it makes sense for us to do it in Europe. Is it the ultimate configuration? The ultimate configuration for me, well, that I think would be for the producers to naturally do it. And, and look, some of them have, have had a look at it. Yes, um, they have. <laughs> the guys at uh, SQM have objected to the last of our pending patents in Chile. Ignoring the fact that I've already got two granted patents in Chile, but they've objected to the last one. So they must, they must think it's a bit of a threat, but probably self-defeating because I'm not sure that I'm going to talk to them again. And I might go well, and pick up the I, phone to Paul or uh, Eric and see if they want to have a spin. How quickly do you think you can move on this? Because it's clear that the gigafactory plans in Europe are huge. And the raw material challenge, especially for lithium, for Europe, wanting local production, that's just not happening. You know, what we're talking about here is every chloralkali producer uh, brings in the sodium chloride, puts it in water, 
and then has to purify it. So really, it's just the purification. We use standard chloralkali cells. We obviously have to put different membranes in and perhaps different electrodes to, to what they've got, but they are identical two-cell electrolyzers, right? There's nothing quirky yeah. in... So that part of it and uh, the fact that we only have to, you know, essentially we take the lithium chloride solution and we'd use um, solvent extraction, iron exchange... What, what the, the chemicals that we would use, so what we'd do is we'd overproduce hydroxide, convert some of that excess carbonate and hydroxide. We would use those to, in terms of the purification. Rather than adding sodium carbonate, we'd add our own lithium carbonate. Rather than adding uh, sodium hydroxide to take out, you know, calcium, magnesium, whatever, mm. um, we would just be using our own lithium and recirculating it because... The, the cost is just power, right? So it's it's low cost and we're not introducing impurities to take out impurities, right? So it's a, it's a and then we'd use the ion exchange to, to get it up to brine, an electrolysis brine spec and then zap it. So, you know, we've, we've you know, and because and we started this on the spodumene ones, they're, they're, they have more metals to take out you know, iron, aluminium, whatever. Uh, the brines have less, but, you know, you can get some pretty funky looking brines. Um, they're a bit hard to process, but notwithstanding that, um, we can get it up and running very quickly. Having looked at Qinghai brine, if you want to talk about a funky brine, did you, have you piloted any of the lower quality brine? Do you have, have you done any work with the low quality brines with this or high mag brines? Uh Yes, to the high mag. No, for the Chinese uh, products uh, or the Chinese feedstocks. Well, they're they're, um, they're super high mag, and they got a lot of other garbage in them too, which is why they've they've struggled so much yeah. in Shanghai. But it's all, all hydrometallurgy works, Jay. It's just the cost. <laughs> well, I mean, at the okay. current lithium price, they should be unconstrained right now. If we look at the Korean and Japanese statistics, actually the price was lower in 2021 than it was in 2019 because of the some bad contract. My feeling, it, it well, Abelmarl just came out with numbers. They're, they're saying price up 40 to 45%. And when Abelmarl admits that, you know, it's, it's kind of Katie bar the door because they would talk about uh, much lower improvements when everybody else was announcing high prices during the boom, it looks to me like you can, you, you have a pretty open field to yeah, develop we're, this. We're, we're very excited. <laughs> and, you know, we just got our U S patent granted for, for Eli, um, or we got the notice of grant. So I think we had to pay the filing fee, but you know, it's, we've now got 12 national phase and 18 pending, you know, for, for three different families over every every lithium producing country now and what we can foresee in the future. And that coupled with DLE, once they crack it, it'd be, you know, I mean, that, that, that is the future. You get the lithium out quicker. You don't have to wait for the sun. I mean, there's easier said than done. Um, but to the extent that you need it now, let's take out the hard part, which is the traditional route. I mean, even if you, so, you know, say they're going to go to 400 and, 800, whatever, from brines. You need to have the soda ash. You need to have the the, the caustic. 
You sure there's enough caustic down there? To get the caustic, you got to have the chloralkali cells. If you're going to build a chloralkali cells, you might as well zap lithium chloride. So if I look at your, I, uh, ti- your timetable, you're looking at 2023 to do a... No, I think, I think we'd, you know, with that one, if we made a decision, you know, in 23, you could see delivering into 25, right? I mean, you want to be... For, it's just like nickel. Uh, lithium, nickel... I mean, you reckon you're happy now. Just wait till the back half of this decade. Right? We'll be smiling like Cheshire cats. That's my question to you is how quickly, if you're successful, do you think you can replicate this to the fact where you're... Any, everywhere there's a chloralkali cell or you get new ones built. On a time basis, though, because you're not really planning on proving this out for... Yeah, couple- we'll prove it out, you know, in the next 18 months. Okay. We'll take it through to feed study. It'd be ready to execute in 18 months. We would like to thank our sponsor, Zolandes, who prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Recently, a junior lithium explorer in Argentina was able to save up to 20% in their exploration costs through the use of Zolandes Technology Services. To learn more, visit Zolandes.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z. Dot com. So then the cost curve becomes different and yeah. much more bifurcated than Correct. it than it is now. So then what does that what what does the decade of the 2030s in your long-term crystal ball look like? It doesn't seem to me once you get to a, a world where you have enough, well, 2040, when your your 50% is recycle, then it seems like it's not a good time to be a hard rock guy. It's a front. We got 18 years left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How many mines have got a you know 18 or 20 year reserve? There's not there's not a lot. There, there'll always be room. Now you got lapidolite back in the game, so. Look, it's, you know, I think necessity is the mother of invention, Joe. And, and you know, once once we apply our minds and money to R&D, you can see from the DLE that they will get that to work. I don't know what time frame, right? But um, the electrolysis, you know, that is the best way to make a chloride into a hydroxide. You just cannot, you can't argue it. I think what you're doing, if that works, is DLE depending on how you do it, you, you can have fresh water issues. You know, it just depends on what flavor of DLE you're talking about, I guess. But uh, yeah, time, time will tell. Yeah, absolutely. Your corporate presentation talks a lot about the ESG aspects. You seem to be moving and positioning yourself so that, and I think I called you this maybe last time we talked the, 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 the poster boy for ESG um, <laughs> with the urban mining. <laughs> and it, ELI sounds like uh, another, yeah, another winner from that perspective. That's, that's true. Even our vanadium recovery project, you know, we, we switched from using strong acids or the salt roast leach biometallurgy to uh, an alkaline leach where we, our major reagents carbon that we capture from emissions and sparge in and we render our tailing as a inert carbonate material that can be used as, um, I mean, it, one, it sequesters the CO2 that we capture. 
and use in the leaching process and two, we can permanently sequester it as a building material. Yeah, I mean, we designed our technologies. I mean, what do you do next? You know, so you got Mount Marion up and running, but we've got a staged exit out of that. We're not going downstream immediately. We went to the other end, the value chain, work backwards. Then we can now got the technologies where we can look upstream. Uh, we can do it as partners, you know, as principal in partnership or license the technology so that we can generate multiple projects out of these technologies. And we have, and we will continue to do that. Very hard otherwise to go and have a look at what's your next trick for these producers. What's your next sailor? What's your next hard rock deposit? They're generally just one deposit companies or two deposit companies. You look at Neo Metals in 2028, 20, Yeah. How much of your revenues coming from urban mining versus other things? Majority. Yeah. All, all of the, you know, producing those, you know, res- responsibly producing advanced materials. We're getting, you know, high value in use. Like our customers aren't there to punt them and bet on whether they go up or down. They, they need our products to make high value products. You know, we're still comfortable investing in the long run as long as we're down at the bottom end of the cost position. I mean, that's, that's the driver. How we get there sustainably is to read the playing field and to develop our processes ahead of the game. Well, I think you've done a, a pretty good job. You're in, in a way very similar to the, to the way Gangpen's gone out and part, had partnered with so many people. You seem to have done a, a wonderful job of finding the, the right people at the right time. Not through lack of trying, I'll give you the two. <laughs> I'm amazed at all the things you've been able to accomplish not being able to leave <laughs> Western Australia, yeah. except for virtually. So. Well, we've been doing a lot of work in the background, I can assure you. So that when we do, I mean, look, we're on, I'm on a plane next month, you know, heading up into Europe. So, you know, we're, we're back. We're bad. What's the listing in London going to do for you? Just increase so, look, the access to capital or? Yeah, look in the visibility, right? I mean, you know, you can get the green mark up there from the London Stock Exchange when you're getting your revenues from green sustainable businesses. There's, there's funds that, that, you know, equity funds that follow that, um, access to green pools of capital, like the greenest capital in the world, most patients probably from Europe. We've got three projects, that, green projects. So the battery recycling, the vanadium recovery and Eli in Europe. The ASX, obviously, you know, being a former colony was probably modelled on the London Stock Exchange. So you can get, you can be dual listed without too much of a hassle. Um, a company, my CFO company secretary wouldn't agree with me, but... Um, we've managed to get through that. And so we should be listed in London towards the end of the month. Congratulations. Let me ask you one more question. As you look at the supply and demand imbalance, yeah. how, how much of a problem do you think that's going to be? Do you see demand destruction or just long waiting lists for electric vehicles? I think you answered your own question. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Elon's Buying Spodgermain. And he's put his own converter down at the Gigafactory in Texas. Right? They're, they're doomsday scenarios when cell makers and car makers are converting Spodgermain. Is it the right thing to do for Tesla? Absolutely. Um, I'm, surpri- I'm surprised it took as long for that to happen 
as it did, given uh, it's a natural the, extension, I think, yeah. of of the you know the old Henry Ford doing everything in the one shed that he that he lifted, which is great, and it worked. You know, the problem is, I think, for Henry's <laughs> not direct ancestors, but I think Ford and and some of the other OEMs are are screwed big time from a. It would be it'd be their biggest mate. Can they make cars? They can make everything bar those batteries, Joe. Yeah. They can make cars. You know, they. I mean, look how good a quality cars there are now. The batteries is the cha- the challenge. It's not the cell making. It's the raw materials. Yeah, it's exactly. The under, it's the softest underbelly. And I, I'm just I'm just astounded that the light didn't come on sooner. But I guess it's because where I sit, I was always cheerleading for somebody to actually put money into lithium and and now really money's not a problem for most of the projects it's execution um yeah that then it's a bit circular it means you can probably get equity money but the debt money is still hard yeah but i mean if you look at i see lack repaid their their project financing (laughs) well ahead of uh well well ahead of production which which, to be perfectly honest i've only ever seen done once before and and i did it but anyway well, I mean, I think uh, I think John Evans uh, learned a lot of lessons along the way, and uh, shout out to John Evans for how he's handled Lithium Americas. Well, I appreciate your time. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I reckon that's it, Joe. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been the quickest hour of my easily my month. <laughs> It's All right, been super. It's been great catching up with you, Shinian Hao. Shinian uh, Hao. I do have a. For the I've got a rapid. I got a rapid fire question for you. Sure. What was the most positive thing about not being able to travel for two years? Uh, easily spending much more time at home with my three young boys and my wife. I was pretty sure that was the only answer you could give me. Did you pick up any, <laughs> did you pick up any new skills? Is there something because you were home more? Did you? No, but I got, I did, I did get, I did get a home gym and, uh, you know, get myself fit just in case there was an outbreak. Cause you know, eating right and keeping yourself fit is about the only defense that you possibly got. The vaccine's not a vaccine. It just removes, you know, reduces the symptoms. You and Joe Rogan have something in common. (laughs) (laughs) I probably did when I was a younger bloke. (laughs) Well, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Well, Mr. Larry, have a great day. At the risk of repeating myself, I will say that Chris, in my opinion, is one of the best minds in the lithium, battery materials, recycling space. And that is the value of this podcast, being able to bring you, on a regular basis, long-form conversations with experts. I will close with one of my favorite sayings, Nanakarobi ya oki. Fall down seven times, get up eight. Thanks for listening.